Times are tough if you believe something to be true. Times are tough if you believe that that truth is a conviction, not just an opinion. An opinion is something that you hold to. A conviction is that which holds you. You can change an opinion without changing who you are. At one stage in life, you may prefer one color. At another stage in life, you may prefer another color. At one stage of life, your taste buds may move you in one direction. Another stage of life, you may say, I prefer this kind of cuisine to that. It's okay. With these changes, I think God in his immense infinite capacity has given us so many choices with which to live. I remember reading a, uh, an essay once by F.W. Borum, my favorite essayist. It was called The Blessed Word Which, W-H-I-C-H, that blessed word which. And he tells the story of a man who'd become an alcoholic and had ruined his life. And then wonderfully, God got a hold of him, transformed him, changed his life. He was a new man with new affections, with new commitments and the commitment to Christ himself. And one day his wife from the upstairs said to him, you know, we are going out for dinner tonight and uh, you have to have a suit on for this occasion. So he paused and said, which suit should I wear? And as soon as he said that, he said, I realized what God had done in my life. He said, when all my money had gone in an indulgent life, I never had a choice of which suit to wear. He said, now all of my finances had been reorganized and I actually had a choice of which suit to wear. That blessed word, which. God gives us the choice, what you're gonna have for lunch, who you're gonna have your lunch with, and so on and so forth. But there are some realities in which truth, by definition, is known to be exclusive. Truth, by definition, is exclusive. And truth is primarily a property of propositions. Truth is primarily a property of propositions. That's very hard for a visual culture to understand. Thy word is truth. Your word abides forever. The scriptures cannot be broken. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but this word will abide forever. And God left us a book. He left us propositional truth. And that's why I think it is fascinating of all the metaphors he could have used. He could have said in the beginning was video. He could have said in the beginning was a picture. He said in the beginning was the word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And it is Peter the fisherman who reminds us that this did not come through any private interpretation, but how the Holy Spirit of God overshadowed these people as they inscribed Holy Writ. The scriptures are very key to us understanding what truth really is. And he's given us that from across the millennia. 40 different authors 
66 different books, over a millennium and a millennium and a half used in which to inscripturate this. And if you don't take the word seriously, it'll be very hard for you to form your convictions. You may have a lot of opinions, and in the shifting sands of our culture, which has come unhinged from its biblical moorings, we're the high seas with our chart or compass, and every day you wake up and you wonder what new decision we are making to head out into the highway at a high speed, and the faster we move, the farther ahead we had better be able to see. But we don't know the destination towards which we are actually headed in the choices that our culture is making. I have been in Christian ministry now for 47 years. I was married in 1972 and a week after that began my itinerant life. So it's nearly half a century. I do not recall when I have seen such confusion on matters that are so critical. Think of it for a moment. We don't know how to define anything anymore. We don't know how to define what is truth. We don't know how to define our very biological makeup. We don't know how to define what it means to be a family. All of these are sort of like ideas tossed into the winds and at the mercy of the whim of whatever a person wishes to feel at that moment. It's a dangerous time. Imagine if you had a pilot like that. Said, I know what the instruments are saying, but I don't feel the same. <laughs> and you hear this happening all the time. There are no parameters, there are no boundaries. My message today is titled, how to defend the faith and the truth in times such as these. How do we defend it? And you know, in the first, chapter, first book of Chronicles, chapter 12, David is listing all of his military personnel, all of his warriors. So he is talking about defending the physical territory of his land because they were surrounded by marauding bands and predators. And all of a sudden, in the middle of that list of his military might, he has this thrown in. The men of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. So you've got all the fighters, all the muscle-bound individuals, all those who knew how to guard the boundaries. But now he's got a group of people who are the strategists, who knew what the nation should do. That is key to using the power that God has entrusted with us. It's not just that he gives us the power. He also asks us to seek wisdom on how to use that power. Because all the power invested in you and me, if it's moving in the wrong direction, will destroy you before it destroys the ones that you are act actually fighting against. So this is critical. What should we do? 
You know, in the 1970s, uh, 1960s actually, Archibald MacLeish, who was writing, uh, gave us some incredible words of warning to remind us of what it is that was happening in our times. And I'm going to take one from this side of the waters and one from the other side, Mugridge, and show you how right they were over the last half a century of what was actually happening. Maybe let me go to Malcolm Mugridge first when he resigned his position of the chaplaincy at the University of Edinburgh. Now, if you know Mugridge's biography, Mugridge is considered one of the greatest English journalists of the 20th century had a remarkable conversion experience. One time editor of Punch magazine, he knew how to mock things. He knew how to make humor even out of the sacred things. And he said when he stands before God, I'm gonna ask him to forgive me for being so fatally fluent. He knew how to turn a phrase and he mocked the Christian faith and so on till he was dramatically converted. He became chaplain at this university in St. Giles in Scotland, and then he handed in his resignation over the changing views of what was happening in the terms of affording pleasure for the student body. I won't get any more specific than that. So here he is writing in the 1970s in his farewell talk to the Edinburgh students. So dear Edinburgh students, this is likely to be the last time I address you, and this is what I want to say to you and I don't really care whether it means anything to you or not, whether you think there is anything in it or not, I want you to believe that this row I have had with your elected officers has nothing to do with any puritanical attitudes on my part. I have no belief in abstinence for abstinence's own sake. No wish under any circumstances to check any fulfillment of your life and being. But I have to say to you this, that whatever life is or is not about, it is not to be expressed in terms of drug stupefaction and casual sexual relations. However else we may venture into the unknown, it is not, I assure you, on the plastic wings of Playboy magazine or psychedelic fancies. However we want to venture forth, it's not going to be on the plasticity of Playboy magazine or psychedelic fancies. Isn't it fascinating? These are the very two things we are discussing in our laws today. What kind of drugs, what kind of fantasies can we engage in? That was written over 50 years ago. Archibald MacLeish, writing in 1967 in one of the leading magazines of the time, there is in truth a terror in the world and the arts have heard it as they always do, under the hum of the miraculous machines and the ceaseless publications of brilliant physicists, there is actually a silence which waits and is heard. It is the silence of apprehension. We do not trust our time. And the reason we do not trust our time is it is because we have made this time and we deep inside we do not really trust ourselves. We have played the hero's part, mastered the monsters, accomplished the labors, become gods, and we now trust our, and we do not trust ourselves as gods. We know deep inside who we really are. In the old days when the gods were someone else, 
The knowledge of what we are did not frighten us. There were furies to pursue the Hitlers and Athenas to restore the truth. But now that we are gods ourselves, we bear the knowledge for ourselves like that old Greek hero who learned when all the labors had been accomplished that it was he himself who had killed his sons. Fifty years ago, like the old Greek hero, he figured out it was he himself who'd killed his sons. Intoxication, sensuality, and the killing of the young. At our hands and at our whim, are we going to listen? Are we going to learn? Because he who refuses to learn from history is forced to repeat its mistakes. He who refuses to learn from history is forced to repeat its mistakes. What do we do? How do we do it? And I'm going to give you a little bit of a background. How did all of this happen? How did we end up the way we have where once upon a time a nation like this was a beacon in a dark world. And today, we are playing the lead in making it darker. Once upon a time, we were a shining light, pointing the way. I was in Moscow, Russia a couple months ago, speaking, I had a large audience there, three days in a row, spoke to them. I remember going there many years ago for the first time with my wife. It was in the 80s during perestroika and glasnost and all of that. They were trying to open up. <clears throat> and I was at that time what they would call Leningrad, walking to a big church to speak. And the only Bible I saw was one. One Bible by an elderly woman who came, had it wrapped in a cloth. <clears throat> my wife and I were watching her gradually unwrap that and held it like she was holding a most treasured volume in her hand. Nobody else had it, and gently turning the pages so as not to damage anything. Today I was speaking to nearly 2,000 people. Everyone had a Bible on their lap. And I was introduced, the last time I was in Moscow, by the bishop who said if Mr. Zacharias had come here in the 80s, the only Bible he would have probably seen would be in the museum in the Kremlin. He said, now every one of us has a Bible here. So even with all of the oppression, the church in Russia is growing. With all of the oppression, the church in Iran is growing. With all of the oppression, the church in China is growing. And the liberal media here prides itself in the fact that we are losing our way with the Christian faith. The churches are empty and so on. Of course, they never ever come to churches like this. They purposely like to go to where they can lie down on the pew or something like that. Here it is, the changes that have taken place, how did it happen? In 1844 was born a man by the name of Frederick Nietzsche. His father was a pastor, both of his grandfathers, maternal, paternal, were pastors. But Nietzsche was a brilliant intellectual and he lost his faith in God. He's the one who popularized the phrase, God is dead. Popularized the phrase, God is dead. And then he said, because God has died in the 19th century. Listen, Nietzsche knew this. In the last 13 years, he swung between sanity and insanity, lying in bed. Brilliant man, but he was losing his mind. 
probably triggered by a lifestyle. Biographers are not sure of that. But here it is. He said, because God has died in the 19th century, two things will happen in the 20th century. A universal madness will break out, and the 20th century will become the bloodiest century in history. Both of those have come true. A kind of a madness has broken out. We killed more people in warfare in the 20th century than all the previous 19 centuries put together. We just commemorated D-Day. And when you think of that, one century we killed more than the previous 19 put together, and that we are only talking about warfare. Not all of the other practices that we enjoin. You see, the death of God signaled a loss of point of reference for right and wrong. So what we hear today are phrases like this, my rights, my rights, my rights, my rights. No one ever pauses to define what is right. There was a prisoner who looked at me the day before yesterday. You know, these, there's some, some very bright minds there. One guy was talking about his, there's a seminary, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary has classes at Langola Prison. Two of my colleagues, Abdu and Vince, lectured at it and I sat there listening to their brilliant talks. There are 90 students at Angola Prison, mainly lifers, who are enrolled in those classes. And so the warden last time told me instead of a gang of thugs, we now have gangs of pastors. It's amazing what you hear from them. They are using words like ontological, epistemological, and you pause and say, am I in a prison? One guy had done his dissertation on the arguments of Augustine. How brilliant it is. So I'm talking to one of these guys after my message was over and he looked at me and said, you know, we're so torn between right and left in our country, all the hate that's going on. I kept using right and left and right and left. He said, how do you respond to this? I said, that's the problem. That is the problem. We're talking right and left. We've forgotten there's an up and a down. If you talk about up and down, you will know who's really right. And the opposite of right is not left, it's wrong. So when we go to the up and the down, you move away from political tags and brandings because any stigma can lick a good dogma. <laughs> Those are the words years ago of George WFWL, you know, uh, any stigma can lick a good dogma. And if you forget there's an up and a down, it's all dogma and stigma without the point of reference for what is true. Now, here's what I want to say to you. Once upon a time, those who did away with the notion of God had a fear of the ramifications of that move. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because they knew we were now going to have our feet planted firmly in midair. There was no grounding. 
There was no point of reference. And if you've got your feet firmly planted in midair, you have no foundation. And if the foundations are destroyed, what are you going to do? But now, there's a difference. The difference is this. We are willing to live with the ramifications of no God. That's the difference. And it's a huge difference. It's one thing to say, I don't believe in God. People like Bertrand Russell, about atheists and so on. Even he talked about the fact that he doesn't have an explanation for how to arrive at these things called good and bad. Anthony Flew, the most vociferous atheist of the latter part of the last century, died moving from atheism to at least deism. But he was talking to theists all the time and the thing that he was wrestling with before he died Two very important things. One was the influence of C.S. Lewis. He said Lewis's argument for moral reasoning was unshakable. In the, when I was writing in the 80s, a student in the 80s, Anthony Flew was the big name we had to study as the quintessential atheist. Now he's lying on his deathbed wondering if C.S. Lewis was right. Think of the amount of hours I could have spared researching flu if he had said this earlier on. <laughs> but then the second thing he said, N.T. Wright's book on the resurrection, he said was really haunting him if Christ truly rose again from the dead. Moral reasoning and life beyond the grave. My goodness, he was holding on to the two pegs on which everything stood and the greatest commandment stood. That God is God, the God of the living and of the dead. But now we really don't care. We can live with the ramifications. That's why we are seeing so much of hate everywhere. We have become gods, even though deep inside we know we are not fit to be God. So what was it that Muggeridge said? If God is dead, something is going to have to take its place. It's either megalomania or erotomania, the clenched fist or the phallus, Hitler or Hugh Hefner. Said that in the 70s. Somebody's going to have to take its place. Being megalomania or erotomania, the clenched fist or the phallus, Hitler or Hugh Hefner. Muggeridge was talking about this when he was in Biafra during the Biafran War. An incredible thing happened. He said, I was on the lines watching the execution about to take place of these political prisoners. And the guns were picked up. And the journalists were around to film this. And here are these poor souls about to be felled and gunned down. The guns are raised. Ready. Aim. And a voice from the side of the journalist shouted, Cut! My battery is dead! Cut! My battery is dead. I could tell you a lot more about these things, but oftentimes have to protect the privacy of people involved, so I won't. Let me just say this. In this day of the visual, we have lost the value 
of what truth really means and what human life really is all about. The willingness to live with the ramifications. Secondly, a gathering storm of religious pluralism and the inability for the West to find its point of reference. You know, it's fascinating what you see. If you go to China, they want to hark back to their old Confucian values and so on, right? Because there was no God in that. Man is self-referencing. If you go to uh, uh, India, the present leader of India wants to make, make it Hindu Stan, the land of the Hindus. He wants to go back to their heritage, to their culture. And these nations that are going back to their roots, even some of which are incoherent, we want to uproot from whence we had come. And religious pluralism has knocked us off our own way of measuring truth. Pluralism is a good thing, by the way. It's a good thing. Because God himself allowed this pluralism. But if pluralism is taken to mean relativism in truth, that's when pluralism self-destructs. So you have the willingness to live with the ramifications. You have pluralism. And number three, the visual. Looking through the eye is what God intended. Instead, we look with the eye and devoid of a conscience. The eye is an instrument through which we look. But the eye doesn't interpret for you in your conscience whether what you're looking at is good or bad. That has to come from your conscience. The eye is not self-referencing morally. The eye is like a pair of glasses. You have to be able to see through, but you must learn to see with. You have to learn to see through, but you have to learn to see with. What is it you see with? And that's where the living soul comes in to you and to me. We are interpreters of whether what we are seeing is right or wrong, good or bad. You know, it's fascinating to me. There are about five voices in the book of Genesis that you hear right in the first three chapters. And the one voice that we don't spend much time about is, who told you you were naked? Who told you that? Amazing. No third person came, hey, you guys don't have any clothes on. Who told them that? They knew the legitimate implication of who they were intimated to them that nakedness without a conscience means something has died within you. Means something has died within you. And so I say what Jesus said is so critical. The eye is the lamp of the body. Let the light within you be single, because as the light becomes darkness, how great is the darkness indeed. And where do we get our news from now? Not by propositions and thinking, but by the eye gate of entertaining ideas. That's where we get it. Isn't it interesting? Hollywood has become the biggest purveyor of entertaining without a conscience. 
But when it comes to moral decisions, they want to become the conscience of a people. Fascinating. People who never get tired of very well pretending to be somebody else. All of a sudden, when they are who they really are, we find out everything is a pretense. There is really no light in a dark world where light is the only thing that matters without the conscience. And so we're blind. How do we respond? Let me just say three. By the way, so what we're trying to do is reach a generation that listens with the eyes and thinks with its feelings. Let me repeat that. We're trying to reach a generation that listens with the eyes and thinks with its feelings. How do we do it? How do we respond? Number one, we need an apologetic that is not merely heard, but is also seen. We need an apologetic that is not merely heard, but is also seen. If we don't live out the Christian life, it doesn't matter how loudly we are actually shouting. The world wants to see Christ much more than it really wants to hear about him. And if we are that living reflection of who Jesus is, you know, I couldn't help it. Uh, it's just, uh, I don't know if I, yes, I have it in my pocket. I didn't intend to keep it here for this purpose. This cross was given to me day before yesterday in Angola prison. We were walking through death row. And all of a sudden, we hear this voice ringing out from one of them. They only just have a small little enclosure. Everything they need, the sink, the toilet, a little table, and the bed. That's all they have, like that. They all jointly look at a screen. And a number of guys that said, you know, I, I, I watch you on television. I watch you on this channel. I watch you on that channel. One of them had been there 25 years. Another guy I talked to had been there 18 years. And this beautiful voice coming from one of the cells. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So all of us walked over towards him and I held on to the bars and I asked him about how he came to know the Lord there. And then on his bed were dozens of these crosses that he spends his day making. And he gave this to me and gave me a little painting of a flower never asked for anything until I just said to him, can I pray for you? He said, brother, I'll be grateful for that. So we reached out, I don't know what he was there for, probably something quite horrific to have been on death row there. And so we reached out and we prayed. And he said, I'm gonna spend the rest of my life here, but I want to be a witness for Jesus right here on death row. Amazing stories. And I could see in his eyes he wasn't putting me on because I may never see him again. Ladies and gentlemen, no matter how dark our past, there is a moment in which he changes your heart and mine and the world out there is longing to see somebody they could really believe. Somebody they could really believe. The authenticity of a Christ-likeness and what flashed through my mind as I looked at him was my Lord was on death row too. But the difference, the ones there, 
supposedly, I guess, bearing their own guilt. Our Lord, bearing yours and mine. And so I wrote on a blog on our website, I said, you know what, we're all in a prison. We're all in the prison of sin. And this is the only answer that we have hope. People have to see that crucified life. If they only hear about it, they will never get a glimpse of what it is it's all about because they are seeing now through the eyes, not necessarily listening through the ears, number one. Number two, we have to have an apologetic that's not merely argued but also sensed and felt. So wonderful, by the way, great job with the choir, great job with the music, thank you. What does it do? Get you to feel. The poet can sometimes take you to a mountaintop much quicker than a philosopher can. Because music has those wings that bridge the head to the heart. And so when this guy was singing Amazing Grace, there were about seven or eight of us there, and even the guards, they were all going like this. If he just spoken to us, it would have been great, but that's not all it was. He sang in the strains of what had bridged the head to the heart. So my question to you is, have you established your convictions? Because convictions engender feelings. I'm probably going to get into trouble with this illustration, but if you get really mad at me, write to my colleague Sanch. Okay. <laughs> People often ask me, now, between men and women, who's more intellectual? <laughs> you know, uh, I heard somebody say this a few days, a few weeks back. He said, if you have a mother, one day she'll become a mother-in-law. If you have a father, one day he'll become a father-in-law. If you have a son, one day he'll become a son-in-law. If you have a daughter, one day she'll become a daughter-in-law. If you have a wife, she is the law. <laughs> when I told this to my wife, I promise you, do you know what she did? She gave me a high five. She said, that's great. So here it is. Who's more intellectual? It's the wrong question. Let me answer it in my way. I hope I don't make you mad. There is no difference in the intellect. There's one very significant difference I have observed. Men can think, but they don't like to draw the implications of their thinking into how they should feel. Women think and are willing to feel the reality of what they think. That's the difference. So what is it you often hear from men? Oh, no, I don't want to argue about this. You know, I don't want to argue. Let's just leave it. Let's just leave it. It's okay. It'll all be okay. And the wife says, no, I want to talk about it. <laughs> because I don't see you feeling what you are saying. 
And as much as I hate to go public on these things, they're right. Absolutely right. There's no difference here. There is a real difference in the honesty of the implications of what we actually say, we believe, or are thinking. And if you go to places like Russia and all, do you know what you hear? My mother led me to Christ. My grandmother led me to Christ. Go across history. You may read of Charles and John Wesley. It was Susanna that made the difference in their life. She was the mother of 19 and she herself came from a family of 29. Amazing. So, build your convictions. Don't just talk about them, feel them. Number one, it has to be seen, not just heard. Number two, it has to be felt, not just argued. And number three, I close with where I began. It has to defend not only the ends of reaching people for Christ, but the means of what we defend, which is the Word of God. How do you defend it? Number one, read it. Read it. One of my good friends in New York, Bill Huang, a Korean gentleman, remarkably converted, started a ministry called the Public Reading of Scripture. His whole ministry, he's a very successful businessman, he doesn't need to earn anything. He travels around the globe encouraging people to read the Scripture publicly. I'm going to be in New York in about a month, and he and I, he's pulling together some very successful business people. Sanjay's a good friend of his, we've known him well. He's pulling us together on an early morning just to bring all of his friends, and all we do is read the scriptures to them. He did this in Washington recently, and by the time he finished reading Psalm 107, the people were wiping their tears away from their eyes. The power of God's word. Read it. Read it and learn how to defend it, how to protect it. And so I close with a simple statement, an illustration. You may have heard me use it, but I think it's so powerful. In 1939, Christmas Day, King George VI, who had a stuttering problem, was coached by a speech therapist on how to speak. And he went to the microphone at one of the most critical times in human history, as we were on the brink of that war. And he prepared a speech to calm the nerves of the Commonwealth. As he was going to speak, his 12-year-old daughter, who is now the queen, gave him a piece of paper on which these words were written. King George VI quoted that in his speech. Very few people remember the whole speech, but they remembered these words. Most people don't know who had given it to him. It was a 12-year-old girl. These were the words. I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. Give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. He said to me, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God 
it shall be to you better than the light and safer than the known. Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. It shall be to you better than the light and safer than the known. The question is this, how do you put your hand into the hand of God? This is it. You know, when you're holding hands and walking with somebody you love, you're listening to each other's voices as well. And when you walk hand in hand with God, you hear his voice. As Pastor Dan said, he didn't know how it was, but he just sensed God leading him. It may not be the details, but the bottom line, go and do it. When I was being interviewed by Fox News, Fox and Friends last week, on television, they give you two minutes to explain your whole worldview. <laughs> and they were talking about Alex Trebek, thanking people for praying. Imagine in America, we take a television segment to find out if prayer really works. And as long as there are math tests in schools, there will always be prayer in schools. <laughs> That's what a bumper sticker said. That's what a bumper sticker said. So I just, I was given the third one, and my quest, the question was, why doesn't God always answer prayer? And I just said this, you know what? Prayer in the Christian faith is not a one-way street of a grocery list asking God. Prayer is a communion and a relationship, not so much a means of you trying to change the will of God, as Jesus showed us when he went to Gethsemane and said, if there is any other way, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. But prayer is a means by which God cradles and changes your heart to receive his will. Absolutely unique. And my time has gone, so Brother Dan, maybe I'll pick it up when I come back in three years and say fourthly. But here it is. God bless you. It has to be seen, not just heard. It has to be felt, not just argued, defending not only the ends, but the means itself. God's word. Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. God bless you and thank you for having me.